Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet him, greet him, treat him, and street him. Today's date is May 15th, 2019, and I am your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is Mtala, It's the Law of the Land. And our guest skeptic is Dr. Corey Heinz. He is an emergency physician in Roanoke, Virginia. He is also the CME editor for Academic Emergency Medicine. Welcome back to the SGM, Corey. Tell me, what's your latest adventure? Thanks, Ken. It's always great to be on the show. And as you know, I travel a lot. Recently, I got the chance to visit the only part of the contiguous United States that was left on my list. I got to spend a few days in and around Seattle, as well as a few days in Olympic National Park. It's a, gro- it's a gorgeous area, and I can't wait to get back. So have you been to all 50 states? I've not been to all 50 states. That's why I specifically said contiguous, because I have not been to Alaska. And I, there's a couple states in and around. I guess I haven't really been to the upper Midwest, where like South Dakota and North Dakota are. So I... Maybe I fudged a little bit there. Yeah, see, you see how skeptical I am? I'm even skeptical of this, like, just the banter at the start of the podcast. <laughs> well, it's great to have you back. Um, we're, in, we're in Las Vegas at SAEM recording this at the 30th annual meeting, and you couldn't be here. I'm definitely kind of jealous. Vegas is a fun town. Well, what we're hoping is that what we do in Vegas with our guest skeptic and our extra special guest skeptic, because this is an SGM hop, won't stay in Vegas, and we'll be able to cut that knowledge translation window down from over 10 years to less than one year with another SGM hop. Well, you stole my thunder there. I was going to make the what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas joke, but now I've really got nothing to say. You got nothing? Well, then just give us a case. All right. So you are working in your emergency department at a hospital that has an on-site psychiatric unit. You are holding several patients in the department who have been placed on involuntary holds for suicidal ideation while a bed search occurs at facilities elsewhere in the region. Your charge nurse tells you that she has learned the psychiatric unit has open beds that are currently aren't being used. Well, the Emergency Medicine Treatment and Labor Act, or EMTALA, was passed in 1986 to combat and prevent delayed, denied, or inadequate treatment of uninsured ED patients. This federal law mandates that patients who present to an emergency department must have a medical screening evaluation, stabilization of their emergent needs, and arranged transfer to a higher level of care if necessary. And there's also an obligation on the receiving hospital. They must accept these patients in transfer if they have a specialist on call with the ability to manage these patients. The Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS, has clarified that EMTALA applies to psychiatric emergencies. CMS has terminated Medicare provider agreements to 12 hospitals, four of which were related to psychiatric emergencies. Civil monetary penalties may also be levied for EMTALA violations. Corey, what's the clinical question? What are the characteristics of civil monetary penalties related to EMTALA violations involving psychiatric emergencies? And the reference? Terp et al., civil monetary penalties resulting from violations of the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act Involving Psychiatric Emergencies, 2002 to 2018, in Academic Emergency Medicine, May of 2019. Oh, yes, it is. Hot off the press. What was the population, Corey? All civil monetary penalty settlements between 2002 and December 11, 2018. And what was the exposure? EMTALA violations related to psychiatric emergencies. And they compared it to what? EMTALA violations not involving psychiatric emergencies. And what was their outcome? Civil monetary penalties levied by the Office of the Inspector General. Well, this is an SGEM hot off the press episode, which means we have the lead author on the show. 
Dr. Sophie Turp is an assistant professor of clinical emergency medicine in the Department of Emergency Medicine at the Keck School of Medicine of USC. Her research focuses primarily on access to emergency care for vulnerable populations and specifically on enforcement of Entala. Welcome to the SGEM, Sophie. Thank you for having me, Ken and Corey. You're welcome. It's great to have you. So, Sophie, what motivated you to look into MTALA violations involving psychiatric emergencies? So, I started doing research on the MTALA law uh, several years ago after I tried to read more about the law after receiving many patients who had been possibly suboptimally treated by outside hospitals at various Los Angeles County facilities. And I went to read more about the law, and I realized not much was known about it. So, I used Freedom of Information Act to request some information from CMS about MTALA enforcement. And a couple years ago, I published a paper that looked at MTALA enforcement over a 10-year period. And what we found was that almost one in five MTALA citations was related to a psychiatric emergency. The general data is not quite as granular as the data involving settlements, meaning not quite as descriptive. So using a separate database of settlements resulting from MTALA violations, I set out to investigate how MTALA was being enforced as it pertains to psychiatric emergencies and to look at how settlements for MTALA cases involving psychiatric emergencies differed from those settlements involving cases not associated with psychiatric emergencies. So you've been interested in this for a number of years then? Yes. So can you give us the conclusions that your authors came to for this particular paper that we're going to be reviewing today? So we found that nearly one in five civil monetary penalties related to EMTALA violations involved psychiatric emergencies. Settlements related to psychiatric conditions concentrate in two of 10 CMS regions, with half of all settlements occurring in three states, those states being Florida, North Carolina, and Missouri. We found that average financial penalties related to psychiatric emergencies were over twice as high as penalties for non-psychiatric complaints. And we found that recent large penalties related to violations of the EMTALA law underscore the importance of improving access to and quality of care for patients with psychiatric emergencies. Thank you, Sophie. Now, Corey and I are going to run through the quality checklist for observational studies. You sit back, relax, but please feel free to jump in if you think you have something to add or could clarify for us. So, Corey, the first question is, did the study address a clearly focused issue? Yes, Ken, it did. Did the authors use an appropriate method to answer their question? Yes, they did. Was the cohort recruited in an acceptable way? Yes, they searched the civil settlements from 2002 through 2019 from the Office of the Inspector General. Was the exposure accurately measured to minimize bias? It was. They searched settlement descriptions with keywords to identify psychiatric cases in the Baker Act, the Florida Mental Health Act. Was the outcome accurately measured to minimize bias? Yes. Have the authors identified all important confounding factors? This is unclear. We do not know what factors could have confounded this data. There are several possible confounding factors that we've addressed in our limitations, but unfortunately, due to the structure of the data, we were unable to adjust for all of them. All right. How about was the follow-up of subjects complete enough? Unsure again. These were only settled cases, and we do not know how long these cases take to work through the system. However, they did search the database over 16 years. 
I can clarify that for you. I've reviewed several cases, and it would appear that the average time between EMTALA citation and civil monetary penalty settlement seems to be about three years. Okay, well, that's helpful. How about how precise are the results, Corey? Well, I'm unsure again, Ken. They didn't give 95% confidence intervals around the means, only p-values. This is true. We probably should have included them. I will forward you the results, which I have available, and can post them on the site. Well, that's one of the benefits of having the author on, so we can get some more information. We'll post those on the sites, and then I'll let the SGMers decide how precise those 95% confidence intervals are around the point estimate. Corey, do you believe the results? I do. Can the results be applied to the local population? They can in the U.S. And the last question, do the results of this study fit with other available evidence? They do. Let's run through the key results. They searched 16 years, like we said, and identified 230 civil monetary penalty settlements related to EMTALA violations. There were 222, or 97%, penalties levied against facilities and 8, which represents 3%, against individuals. They noticed a decline in settlements related to non-psychiatric emergencies with an increase in those related to psychiatric emergencies. One in five, or 19%, of settlements involved psychiatric emergencies and all were against hospitals. The average psychiatric-related settlement was 2.6 times the average non-psychiatric settlement. I'll put a table in the show notes detailing the psychiatric versus non-psychiatric settlements as it relates to the total numbers, the mean settlement, whether they were settled against an MD or not, and then looking at the EMTALA violation. Was it a failure to screen, a failure to stabilize, a failure to transfer, or failure to accept? But one thing we wanted to pull out was that five or 83% of the six settlements, more than $100,000, were for psychiatric complaints. The three largest settlements were 1295000 260000 and $200,000, respectively. All right, Corey, let's talk nerdy with Sophie here. We've got five questions to ask you, Sophie, to help us better understand the study. And I'm going to go first, and this is about the medical screening evaluation. Failure to do an MSE was the most identified EMTALA violation for psychiatric patients at 84%. Are we doing a poor job screening these patients, Sophie? So providers and hospitals seem to be doing a variable job in screening patients, and many providers are simply unaware of their requirements with regards to psychiatric patients. These failure to MSC cases typically involve one of the following scenarios. Typically, it's a patient presenting to an ED requesting care for a psychiatric issue and being redirected often from the front to an alternate facility that either has psychiatric services takes their insurance, or sees pediatric cases. Typically, these patients are sort of redirected without an MSE. Also, I've reviewed a number of cases where patients in custody of law enforcement showed up at an emergency department with some behavioral health issue and might have been, say, disruptive, and were ultimately transported to a custodial setting without an MSE at the direction of the provider. What's a custodial setting? So like jail or prison. So it's important to remember that if a patient shows up, even if they're being difficult and even if they have a likely alternate final destination, such as jail, it is important for providers to log an MSE. There are a couple other important things for providers to remember. 
First, CMS has specifically clarified that EMTALA applies to psychiatric emergencies and that patients presenting with behavioral complaints or concerns should have a psychiatric screening exam to determine whether a psychiatric emergency exists. I've reviewed a number of cases where patients who seem that they may have been gravely disabled but with physical complaints were medically cleared and discharged by providers who might not have understood the EMTALA requirements for psychiatric patients. For patients presenting with behavioral complaints or overtly obvious active psychiatric issues, providers should evaluate for and document presence or absence of suicidal ideation, homicidal ideation, but also grave disability. The grave disability determination can be challenging and is somewhat subjective and can be influenced by situational factors including weather and or available support systems. There have been a number of EMTALA cases where patients presenting with physical and or psychiatric complaints who lacked the wherewithal to, for example, wear shoes, were discharged or otherwise allowed to leave EDs into blizzard conditions, often with suboptimal outcomes. These patients may have fared better in more temperate climates, but did not fare well shoeless in a blizzard. I would encourage providers with patients with concerns for grave disability to hold the patient until they can be evaluated by a mental health specialist for involuntary hold. Okay, so number two is talking about failure to stabilize. This was the second most common identified MTAL violation and the only one statistically different from the non-psychiatric settlements. Can you discuss what you think this specifically means and provide some examples? So stabilization can refer to a number of things for these psychiatric patients. First, there are a number of cases where patients with psychiatric histories, complaints, or behaviors had concurrent medical emergencies that were not stabilized prior to their discharge or transfer to an inpatient psych facility. For example, a patient who was hypotensive with an arrhythmia after suicide attempt was transferred to an inpatient psychiatric unit with limited medical capabilities and then ultimately transported back to another hospital for medical care. In most cases, failure to stabilize in the psychiatric cases appears to refer to cases where an ED failed to hold a patient, thereby providing a safe environment for a patient in psychiatric crisis until they could be admitted, transferred, or safely discharged. Several of the EMTALA cases resulting in settlement for failure to stabilize involved patients who presented to an ED with psychiatric issues and were discharged or told to proceed to another facility with psychiatric capabilities and were either injured or died as a result of self-injurious behavior shortly thereafter. With regards to grave disability, one hospital in the Midwest was cited and fined for failure to stabilize after a psychotic patient was allowed to elope wearing only a hospital gown into blizzard conditions and was subsequently found frozen nearby. So the third thing we wanted to ask you about was the increasing numbers. One in five settlements were for psychiatric cases and the numbers are rising. Any idea why this might be happening? The crisis of psychiatric emergency care seems to, in part, stem from a general decline in inpatient psychiatric bed and capability over the past two decades in the United States. Emergency departments are now seeing more patients with psychiatric emergencies than they were 10 to 15 years ago, largely because they have difficulties accessing appropriate outpatient mental care. And they also, once they have a patient with a psychiatric emergency, 
given that there's such limited inpatient capacity, often have nowhere to transfer them for stabilizing care. And that's why we see patients boarding for sometimes days or even weeks in the emergency department. Well, this is what I was uh, trying to get my head around. Is it a supply? So there's not enough inpatient bed, there's not enough outpatient mental health services, or is it a demand? In other words, the number of people with psychiatric illnesses and difficulties is going up, or a combination of both? Maybe a combination of both, but I suspect supply is largely responsible. So number four is about the penalties. Can you speculate as to why penalties are higher for psychiatric versus non-psychiatric violations? As you mentioned earlier, uh, five of the six cases that settled for more than $100,000 involved psychiatric emergencies. And because the maximum fine, which was historically $50,000 until 2016, when it increased to approximately $100,000, is less than that, uh, it would suggest that many of these uh, settlements involve stacked fines where multiple issues were identified in a single investigation event. Oh, so does that mean that there was a there was a maximum of a of fifty thousand? It increased, like you said, in twenty twelve, I think. 20, 2016. Twenty sixteen to a hundred thousand, but that was for each violation, not for each case. So each case may have more than one violation of Mtala. Anyone can complain about a suspected MTALA violation to CMS, and they authorize investigations. The state actually goes and does the investigations, but when they're investigating, they actually go through every component of the MTALA law and usually pull about 20 charts. So if there was a complaint about a patient with a psychiatric emergency, they would generally go in and pull about 20 charts from the emergency department involving cases where patients presented with behavioral complaints. Oh, so it's not specifically to that complaint. They actually do a a bit of a chart audit of charts that would be similar to the chief complaint of this is behavioral, this is non-psychiatric. So if there was an MTALA complaint about transferring a neurosurgical patient, they would look at that case, but they would also pull other cases around neurosurgical presentations. Correct. And they may, in their investigation, identify cases with other categories of care. Well, that's fascinating. I knew that the penalties were per violation, and I guess now that I think about it, now that we're talking about it, that explains one reason the penalties could be so high is because these psychiatric cases maybe have multiple issues. I didn't realize they would pull in other cases, which is even more interesting. So the the case that we'll discuss in a bit involving the case study resulted from actual news reports of a patient. Whoa, 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 you're getting ahead. This is my fifth question, okay, Sophie? (laughs) Okay. I mean, you invite her on one podcast, boom, she takes over. Question number five, Sophie. Can you tell us about the case study that you presented in your paper on an Intala violation involving a hospital in the Southeast and boarding a psychiatric patient for 38 days in the emergency department? So can you briefly explain what happened? Can I just want to step in here and, and defend Sophie for a minute? This is her paper. She is allowed to discuss it. Oh, you, you said she comes on the podcast and just starts talking. I think she's allowed to. Oh, yes, I think she's allowed to. Too. <laughs> so for some background, 
to provide a richer example of the EMTALA enforcement process and hospital response to citation for an EMTALA violation, investigation findings and facility corrective actions from the EMTALA investigation related to the largest OIG civil monetary penalty settlement involving a psychiatric emergency is included in the paper. So, In response to news media reports of psychiatric patients boarding for 38 days in an emergency department, CMS launched an EMTALA investigation against a hospital in the southeast. After reviewing hospital records, investigators identified 38 EMTALA violations involving failure to provide appropriate screening examination, failure to provide appropriate stabilizing treatment, and failure to arrange appropriate transfer for patients with emergency psychiatric conditions. Per the OIG, in these incidents, individuals presented to the hospital's ED with unstable psychiatric emergency medical conditions, and instead of being examined and treated by an on-call psychiatrist, and despite empty beds in its inpatient psychiatric unit to which the patient could have been admitted or for stabilizing treatment, the patients were involuntarily committed and kept in the ED for between 6 and 38 days each. Wow. So they had beds. They had beds in the inpatient unit, and they had a psychiatrist available to evaluate them, yet they kept them in the emergency department. So this is actually an important point, and something that I found interesting and somewhat surprising was that the hospital in question had an inpatient behavioral health unit, which by policy and procedure for many years prior to this case had only admitted voluntary patients. And all of the patients in the investigation in question were involuntary. CMS actually cited them for not making those beds available to the patients on the involuntary holds. So there's a a layer to that then. So that they had beds, but these beds weren't designated for involuntary holds. So the psychiatrist thought, well, we don't have beds for you. Whereas the emergency department would be probably looking upstairs, saying, well, you have a bed, a bed is a bed is a bed. But they were using those for voluntary patients as opposed to involuntary patients. And that, had been their, that has been their practice for a number of years. And I imagine there may be some security issues and logistical issues that may differentiate a voluntary versus a non-voluntary unit. So, so that determination was somewhat surprising to me. I, I think it's really important to understand this because, you know, Corey and Sophie, we work in an emergency department. Sometimes we, we feel like we're in a bubble and we don't understand what's also happening in the hospital. And so understanding it from the psychiatric standpoint is really helpful. And we, we should remind ourselves that we should always think not just about what's happening in our department, but the whole system. That's true. And many hospitals have inpatient geriatric psych units that may have available beds that may reject ED patients. So it raises the question, if you're in a busy ED that's boarding psych patients and you have any kind of behavioral health capacity in your hospital, whether or not it's designated for that particular patient, whether or not you should enlist your hospital administrators to try to make those uh, beds available to your patients because it would be in the best interest of the patient and would it be better for them to stay in the emergency department and I assume not getting specific psychiatric or mental health care or being in a bed upstairs that may or may not be designated for an involuntary patient but could receive some stabilization and mental health care. Correct. And another point that I wanted to make regarding this case study is that CMS 
expressed concern that the patients boarding in the emergency department had not received regular visits and stabilizing treatment by the psychiatric consultation service. And so it is my recommendation that hospitals with patients boarding, waiting for transfer or admission to inpatient units, try to the best of their abilities to have psychiatric services evaluate and help to stabilize patients with psychiatric emergencies boarding in the emergency department when they're there for more than 24 hours. We as emergency physicians are well-trained in treating acute agitation, typically by sedating someone, but in terms of implementing the types of psych-specific medications that provide long-term antipsychotic control, it's just not something that we are well-versed in. Yeah, that's all really interesting. Um, Those are all good things to think about. Is there anything else you want to say about your study before we move on? Hey, SGMers. Sorry to interrupt. We did have a microphone failure during the recording of this episode, but luckily I had a backup microphone running, so while the audio quality may drop off, the quality of the content continues to be fabulous. I just want to remind providers seeing patients with any kind of behavioral emergency or behavioral complaint, whether in custody or not in custody, to evaluate for and document whether someone is suicidal, homicidal, or potentially gravely disabled, providing an appropriate psychiatric screening exam prior to admission, discharge, or transfer. All right, it's time to comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEM's conclusions. We agree with the author's conclusion, Ken. Can you give an SGEM bottom line? Civil monetary penalties for MTALA violations involving psychiatric patients are increasing and very expensive for hospitals. Institutions need to have protocols in place to avoid inadequate stabilization, screening, and inappropriate transfer of patients. Can you give us a case resolution? You call the on-call psychiatrist who arranges for nursing staff to open up the remaining beds in the psychiatric unit. How about the clinical application? Do an appropriate medical screening exam on all ED patients, including psychiatric patients. Stabilize any emergent needs and arrange transfer for any patient to a higher level of care if necessary. What are you going to tell the patient, Corey? You need emergency mental health care. We have a bed for you in our hospital and our great psychiatric team will take care of you. All right, it's time for the Keener contest. And last week's winner was Amy Mackish from London, Ontario. She knew that Ahmed's hernia is an inguinal hernia when the appendix is included in the hernia sac and becomes incarcerated. What's the question this week, Corey? What was the largest civil monetary penalty settlement related to an MTALA violation for a non-psychiatric case? Yeah, and that's the trick. It's for the non-psychiatric case because we mentioned the highest settlement for a psychiatric case, but buried somewhere in this paper that is available free and open access from academic emergency medicine. The answer is there. All right, now it's your term, S. Gemmers. What do you think of this episode on MTALA violations in psychiatric emergencies? Tweet your comments using hashtag SGEMHOP. What questions do you have for Sophie and her team? Ask them on the SGEM blog. The best social media feedback will be published in academic emergency medicine. Also, don't forget, for those who subscribe to Academic Emergency Medicine, head over to the AEM homepage and get some CME credits for this podcast and article. 
We'll put the process in the show notes. And if you have any problems, Corey can help you. Sure can. Thank you, Sophie, for coming on the SGM and talking about your hot off the press publication. Thank you for having me. And thank you for Corey for doing another SGM hot off the press. And to finish the show, Sophie, can you give the SGM tagline and your best Michiganian? Is it Michiganian then? Chicago. Chicago, Chicago accent then. Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on The Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next week. Thank you.